RadioInfluence.com. This week, episode two of our return series, Back from a Broken Heart. After hearing episode one, I'm sure you understand why we have so many questions and we want answers. Questions like, how does chronic pain contribute to having a heart attack? Why is back pain so common and how should you deal with it? Is cardiovascular disease the number one killer on the planet? And are we doing enough to prevent it? Do you know your risk factors, the signs and symptoms of heart disease? We'll talk about it today. Also, what women need to know. Ladies, you have fewer heart attacks than men, but a much lower survival rate. Why and what you need to know. And should you be carrying aspirin? Who should be carrying and how it can help in an emergency? So many questions and we want answers. Today, we're digging for those answers as we talk with some of the world's top experts in back pain, neurosurgery, and heart disease. Let's get to it. Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Now, here he is, the Crusher. Welcome, everyone. This week, episode two of our two-part series, Back from a Broken Heart. It was one year ago on the drop of this podcast that I suffered a massive heart attack and crossed over to the other side two times by my count, maybe more. So now I'm working on 12 months of borrowed time. I'm blessed, grateful, and still very pissed off. I don't think I should have had a heart attack in the first place. I'm sure that's what everyone says, but that's my strong opinion here. Maybe it was unavoidable. Maybe it was a genetic thing. Perhaps I was born with cardiovascular disease. But I've never smoked, I've always exercised, and I've been in exceptional shape all of my life. My diet is great, and just over two weeks prior to my heart attack, I had a full physical with the all clear on all counts. Jeff, you're good to go. So what the hell happened? How is it possible I had a heart attack with a clean bill of health and absolutely no signs or symptoms? Could it be almost 18 months of brutal, excruciating back pain, pain that I could not get taken care of in the chaos of COVID and inside a broken Canadian healthcare system? Well, this is where I'm putting my money on the pain. Today, we dig for answers with some of the brightest minds in the business as we talk back pain and chronic pain, heart disease, signs and symptoms, risk factors, and prevention. Things you need to know so you can hopefully avoid what my family and I went through these last few years. One year ago, I got really lucky. And what I want to do in this episode is tip the odds of survival in your favor and possibly save your life from the number one killer on the planet, heart disease. Today, we'll start with back pain. It's well documented that 80 to 90% of the population will suffer from some form of back pain in their lives. We'll talk with neurosurgery and back specialist, Dr. Stephen Ray, who played a major role in my story. He's one of the very best at what he does, and on top of that, he's simply a great person. You'll see that in a moment. Then, where are we at with assessing and preventing heart disease? We'll talk with Diamond Fernandez, cardiac physiologist and founder of the HeartFit Clinic. Diamond is one of the good people out there working to get our healthcare system on track when it comes to heart health. 
And finally, we talk with Dr. James Stone, cardiologist and clinical professor at the Cummings School of Medicine about what we now know about heart disease and what we actually do. There's a huge disconnect here and Dr. Stone will help us connect the dots and make sense of it all. We'll talk to Dr. Stone about the misconceptions surrounding heart disease and notably the numbers we all use as markers like blood pressure. Could those numbers be off the mark? Way off the mark? What you need to know. Also, should you be carrying aspirin with you everywhere you go? How can it help and who's it for? I asked Dr. Stone if chronic pain can contribute to the risk of having heart issues. You know from my story, I believe my back pain was a major contributor. Let's find out if this is indeed possible. And we have a very important discussion on why women suffer fewer heart attacks, but die more often than men. What you need to know and share with all of the women in your life. Today, we'll only be hearing portions of the interviews I had with our guests. I'll be posting the full-length interviews, and I strongly recommend you take them in if you can. While we share some very important information today, each full-length interview is packed with valuable and potentially life-saving information, along with some light-hearted conversation as well. I'll post the links to the full-length interviews on all of our social media, so keep an eye out for those. But before we get to all of that, I want to thank you for all of the feedback and comments from episode one. You all know that I rarely, if ever, talk about myself, and I won't lie, I was a little nervous about just leaving the mic on. But if that episode helps even one person out there avoid what my family and I went through these last few years, mission accomplished. That said, I do want to get to some of your questions. First, from Glennis. Jeff, incredible story. Thanks for sharing. You have my husband and I really thinking. Do you really believe your back pain played a role in your heart problems? Well, Glennis, yes, I do. I really do. And while chronic pain wasn't mentioned in my conversations, initially anyway, with the doctors, I asked them about it, but they couldn't really comment or say a lot. It's just so hard to prove that pain was a contributor, even though there is a lot of research supporting the connection. But stay tuned. I asked Dr. Stone about exactly this, and we'll see what he says. Thanks for that note, Glennis. And then this from Darren. Crush, you're back, man. <laughs> nice play on words, Darren. He writes, I had back issues, but as you mentioned, we were able to correct it through aggressive rehab. I do my exercises every day. I have to. Do you think if you caught your back earlier, would it have helped? Or if maybe you tried a different type of treatment? Well, Darren, here's the thing. We did catch my back pain fairly early. And after I saw the sport medicine doctor, I started working with a great team, Tahisha and Kelsey at Advantage Sport Medicine and Physiotherapy. And we attacked this thing. We actually turned it around for a good long time. Early on in the process, we actually thought I was on the road to total recovery. But the back can be a tricky thing. It wasn't long before it started slipping away on us. And no matter what we did, I think I was just one of those unfortunate 10% of back pain sufferers who will wind up needing surgical intervention. Looking back, I don't think there was any preventative strategy that would have saved me. I mean, look, I was in great shape. I always took care of my core and my back. I had a top-notch team working with me, but I still fell off that cliff. I think, unfortunately, it was simply my destiny. Coming up though, I'll ask Dr. Ray about all of this. What actually does go on when your back falls apart so we can get a better understanding of why it all happens in the first place. Thanks for that, Darren. And then finally from Rob, Crush, I'm glad you made it through. I had angina. We caught it early and started a treatment. I've changed my life. 
exercise, diet, even my work schedule, all of this. I believe that I avoided a disaster. Hearing your story scares me. I think I was well on my way to what happened to you. Do you really think you died and came back? Scary stuff. Rob, first off, I am glad you caught it early. It's alarming how many people like me have no early warning signs at all. Nothing. And yes, I believe I did actually die. But kind of like having that heart attack, I didn't know what a heart attack felt like. So I wasn't sure if I was actually having one. Now, I'm not sure what dying feels like or how it all goes. All I can say is I floated away into blackness and without the help of that EMT, the paramedic and those surgeons, I think I was on a one-way street. I wasn't coming back on my own. I mean, I tried. Those medical experts simply detoured me back to the land of the living. So yes, I do believe I died and trust me, I'm in no rush to go back. That's for sure. Thanks, Rob. I'm glad you're okay. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. I really do appreciate the comments and questions. I answer every single message I get, so do not hesitate to write in. My story started with a monster called back pain. I am so proud to introduce Dr. Stephen Ray, neurosurgery specialist, consultant with the Atlanta Braves, and all-around great guy. And we're joined now by Dr. Stephen Ray, neurosurgery specialist at Piedmont Hospital and consultant for the Atlanta Braves. Dr. Ray, welcome to Crush Performance. So glad to have you on. Thank you, Crush. I'm honored to be here, and I'm grateful for your invitation. Well, trust me, this is our pleasure entirely as we return back from a broken heart. And I've kind of been crafty in the title of our series here, Back from a Broken Heart, because it all started with my back, Dr. Ray. And that's what led me to you through a, an incredible happenstance in, in sequence of circumstances uh, on my path to dealing with back pain that led to the, you know, the health problems I had and then that massive heart attack. And, and so here we are. And, and I wanted to let people know um, what you did and what part you played in my personal story, because I can't help but think there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people out there dealing with back pain who don't understand it and don't know what to do about it. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, Jeff. I mean, back pain is it's ubiquitous or universal in the population. I mean, probably 90% of the general population has back pain. It's the number one reason to see a doctor. Fortunately, most of it is not surgical, uh, but it's nonetheless, it's a detriment to many people's uh, health and happiness and their daily quality of life. Yeah, and I live that most certainly. And, you know, go, going through this whole thing, it was interesting to see how it unwound. But I, I realized, you know, one of the I was so frustrated at the start because, you know, I spent my entire life in sport, getting in shape and playing hard, you know, and I just I still sometimes think back to my back problems that started almost a year and a half prior to my major my major pain um, and as it sort of fell apart. And, and you said something to me that was interesting as we got to know each other and got close to the surgery. You said, I, and I remember saying to you, how did this happen? And you kind of said, well, look, that's what you guys get when you play hard and live hard, you know, playing sports and doing everything you do. 
That's what you guys get. You guys get knees, hips, shoulders, backs. You guys get that. People who are sedentary and not active, they get obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. And so those are the two sides of the, of the scale that, that we get. And I thought that was an interesting statement, Dr. Ray. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jeff. And the thing is, um, it's ironic, but people who are physically fit and very active are the people that get premature degenerative changes of their spine, uh, just wear and tear. We're all destined for it at, at some level. You know, you, the reason that people get shorter as they get older is because 25% of their vertical height is made up of intervertebral discs, which is basically cartilage between the bones and the, in the uh, spine, and those just dehydrate over time. And that's what happens to people that, exert and exercise and are physically fit they just get premature dehydrative changes of the discs yeah interesting stuff and, and i don't need to be any shorter right now so you know my surgery we'll talk about it in a bit i'm really glad you're able to get that spacer in there man because i'm still i'm still fudging the numbers a bit on my height even I to this gave, day i gave you a quarter of an inch you did you <laughs> did and i thank you yeah. that that right there is worth a worth a good beer and a lunch i'll tell you right now <laughs> well well, hey, listen, well, I'm getting to know you and seeing how this whole situation worked, uh, you know, and I've dealt with athletes with back pain. And as you mentioned, right. um, I think out of all the years in all the sports, you know, pro hockey, pro football or baseball guys, there's only one athlete that actually had to go and get a serious back intervention surgically. The other ones, we were able to work with the medical people and rehab them back. And that's the good news. Most of them, as you mentioned, you don't necessarily need to go that way if you catch it early that's and right. deal with it properly. Absolutely. Yep. No question. I mean, back pain is so universal in the population. As I mentioned earlier, it's the number one reason to see a doctor. So with exertion uh, and exercise and activity, it's it, every everybody has it. Um, and most of it is benign. Most of it is just musculoskeletal or, or myofascial pain or muscle spasm. Um, where it becomes a problem is when you have either neurologic compression where something is pushing on a nerve root, either a disc or a bone spur or something like that, or if you have biomechanical instability. In other words, if you have too much motion at a spinal segment, and those are really the two primary indications for operating. And Jeff, you know, it is so common when you have chronic pain to become situationally depressed about it. How can you not? It, it just affects your daily health and happiness and everything you do. Uh, but, and in your case, you know, you had both neurologic compression and biomechanical instability. You had a one vertebrae was slipped over to the side uh, from where it should have been, and then it was repetitively sort of traumatizing uh, your nerve roots. And so that's why it was such a setup for success, and that's why, you know, surgery in appropriately selected people is so effective and so successful. Well, after all I went through here in Canada with not being able to get in to see a doctor and suffering so bad with that pain, maybe it was fate because it brought me to you. On our second call, well before the actual surgery, you really helped me 
maybe more than you know. I told you about the pain, my suffering, and I'll say it again. Chronic pain changes you. It changes your perspective on everything. It simply changes you. Well, after we got to know each other, I told you about my dark thoughts and just wanting the pain to end at all costs. I wanted it all to end. I was in such a bad place. But on that second call, before you even knew me, you stopped our conversation in its tracks and you said, Jeff, listen to me. I want you to know that, yes, you're in pain, your back is injured, but listen, man, you're not sick. We can take care of your back, no problem at all, but you need to know you're not sick. Dr. Ray, I'm not sure if you heard it in my voice or maybe if you've just seen this so many times you knew where I was, but I can't tell you how much that helped me, that perspective. The idea that I wasn't sick, that we can actually fix my back. It was a massive course correction in just my thinking and it really, really helped. The hope of a solution didn't hurt either, but I really want you to know just how powerful that was for me. Well, absolutely. And and you know what, Jeff, that, it, it's so, it, it's affirming, right? I mean, you, you, you affirm the fact that yes, you're hurting like crazy, and it's life altering, but you've got a reason to hurt. But mercifully, it's not a life alter. It's it's a life altering problem, but it's not a life threatening problem. And you know, I, I uh, that's sort of a, a very common line that I tell people with spine pathology is that yes, it is so life altering, and it is understandably depressing. I mean, how can you not be? situationally depressed when you have chronic pain that's a detriment to everything you do throughout your life but when you have some hope that there's a solution for it and it can be fixed then it's affirming and reassuring and uh, encouraging well that was powerful for me no question and i now realize that i never had a clue about the ravaging and devastating effects of chronic pain. I mean, I've had bilateral Achilles tendinosis and that hurt me nonstop. But looking back, it was tinker toys compared to the monster that is serious neurological back pain. I mean, Dr. Ray, this is the worst pain I can possibly imagine. I've had sprains, dislocation, broken bones, but nothing, and I mean nothing, even comes close to the daily nonstop pain I experienced with this monster that is neurological back pain. Dr. Ray, it is a monster and I wish it on no one. No doubt, it's, it's as bad a pain as you can possibly have because the problem is when you stand up and bear an axial top-down load on the spine, there is no eluding it. You, you cannot, there's no relief. And it's intractable and unbearable, especially when you have you know compression of the nerves and juxtaposed bones where the vertebrae are actually touching each other because they're very heavily innervated with pain-sensitive fibers. And so it just hurts like crazy when you, when you stand or move or bend or twist. There's just no relief. It got to the point where there was no escape for me. Some days I couldn't stand, couldn't sit, I couldn't lay down. It was inescapable. Dr. Ray, do you think if I'd seen you earlier when the discomfort was just starting, do you think we maybe would have taken a different course or a plan of action and maybe avoided the complete collapse of my back? Or was this just simply inevitable? You know, Jeff, here's the deal. All of us are destined for degenerative changes in the discs. And so what happens is over time, 
they dehydrate, so they lose their elasticity, so they become more compressible than normal. And when they compress, the ligamentous structures of the spine get some laxity in them. They get some slack in them, and so that's what what uh, creates increased motion or hypermobility at a spinal segment, and that's what creates pain. So, you know, there's a lot of people walking around with abnormal MRIs and degenerative desiccated discs that we don't operate on or intervene on because they're not symptomatic, right? You don't, you treat a person and not a picture, but the, the, the incidence of degenerative disc changes is so universal and so common, but what tips the scale is when it becomes symptomatic and when you have intractable mechanical back pain or neurologic um, deficits, weakness, numbness, pain in the distribution of a nerve because the nerve is being pinched. So, you know, I, we would have identified it earlier. Whether or not we would have intervened is totally dependent upon, you know, a person's symptoms. Okay, so I get this. The discs dehydrate. That just happens with time. And as they shrink, the connective tissue becomes lax or the area becomes unstable and then trouble is on the way. It's just a process of aging and living. So Dr. Ray, if there was a message you would like to share with everyone out there, what would it be? Well, Jeff, you know, back pain is so common and it's, it's sort of a universality of life, but uh, in, in appropriately selected patients. And a, a lot of people think, well, I'm hurting, so I must need a procedure. Most people don't need a procedure. Most people do not need surgery. The two indications for spine surgery are neurologic compression and or biomechanical instability. You had both, and that's why you were such a setup for success. But I will say that in people that, that have pathology and have stuff that needs to be corrected, it is totally life-changing. And uh, if I can help anybody uh, out there that's listening, I would be honored to do so. And I am, uh, am sorry that the situation with the Canadian healthcare system was such that, you know, you had to come to Atlanta, Georgia to get uh, cared for. But to that end, if, if I can help anybody out there that's listening, I would be honored to do so. And uh, again, just grateful for this opportunity. Oh, Dr. A, thank you so much for this and all you did for me. I can't tell you how grateful I am and I look forward to talking with you again soon. There you go, everyone. Dr. Stephen Ray. If you have any questions for Dr. A, send them our way and we'll forward them on to Dr. A. You can get us at info at jeffgershell.com. When we talk about cardiovascular disease and heart attacks, and before I had my event, I didn't realize how much I did not know and how much I misunderstood the disease. And now I'm discovering that many people are in the same boat. So to get a better understanding of where we're at in our knowledge and treatment of heart health, we are joined by Diamond Fernandez, cardiac physiologist and founder of the HeartFit Clinic. Diamond, after my heart attack, I was searching for answers and I was able to come down and meet with you and you really shone some light on the topic. 
We talked about some concepts surrounding heart disease that I'd really not heard before. Not only how a heart attack actually develops and happens, but also the incredible conversation we had revolving around the stats and the difference between men and women when it comes to the signs and symptoms. You really got me thinking, Diamond. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it's always nice to see that. I mean, when you talk about heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease uh, on its own, it's, it's the number one cause of death of men and women, right? And so... Most people think it's a man's disease. It's also a women's disease. And very fit women are getting heart attacks and strokes. And so what do we do about it and what can we do? And that's the what we'll get into a little bit here about how to navigate the, cardi the, the heart disease system or, or how we go about doing that. So the HeartFit Clinic, you know, we're really changing the way we go about determining that stuff. And that's very important. So I told you my whole story and how frustrated I am that I had this heart attack in the first place. I still can't help but think the system is broken. We're so reactive when it comes to not just heart disease, but our health in general. I, I mean, hey, I think you're in amazing hands. And I think I, I feel that we have a really great um, health care, disease care, however you want to call it, system. If you're having that event, like... By, by all means, like if you're having a heart attack or if you're having, you know, uh, something that requires surgical repair really quickly or we've got some of the best cardiologists, you know, in the world right here in Canada to help you if you're having a heart attack, if you're having a stroke or, you know, if you need something that's urgent repair or urgent fix, um, we, we're really good at that. And that's that's I think that's something that we should uh, instead of um, uh looking at what we're missing, I think that's important to know that what we have. I know a lot of people aren't happy with our healthcare system, but I think there's a point where you have to show some gratitude that if there's an emergency like what you had, where you're having a heart attack, you're in good hands. Like you're in really good hands. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I've been saying to all of our listeners and anyone I talk to how grateful I am for the expertise that literally saved my life. I mean, just the professionalism and how the surgical team talked, interacted, and coordinated my situation as I laid on the operating table. I could hear every word they said. Their professionalism gave me a feeling of confidence. And I think that in itself was a game changer, at least for me in my situation. So why we're very grateful for what happens when you have that emergency situation, I think that's super important. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that's where cardiologists excel. That's actually, I know that's where cardiologists excel. When you're having that emergent situation, when they need to get in there and open up something or or get in there and put a stent or do bypass or put in a pacemaker or whatever it is, there's a lot of things that has to happen in an emergent situation. I think where we fail not I think, I know where we fail, is on the preventative side of things. Well, that's the epicenter of my frustration. How in the hell do I have a heart attack? I just had the physical. I had no signs, no symptoms, yet the whole time, my heart was a ticking time bomb. So our healthcare system's not designed to see where risk is of a heart attack or so. We're still following a very archaic model when it comes to understanding cardiovascular disease. So let me explain. You would have checked your blood pressure. You would have checked to see if you have diabetes. You would have checked to see um, if you have high cholesterol. Cholest people think that cholesterol still accumulates to this pipe and you have a last cheeseburger and fries and you end up with a heart attack and it doesn't happen that way. In fact, there's a study that was done, 137,000 people in this study, 83% of them had normal bad cholesterol. 
So it's not about cholesterol. At, a heart, at the HeartFit Clinic, we like to look at particle sizes. So think of this, inside the lining of the artery wall is all skin, right? It's, it's skin like the outside, uh, you know, like the skin that we have outside here. And that lining of skin can get damaged. And when it gets damaged, that's where something like these small cholesterol particles can sliver in, just like a sliver if you have on your hand. Big slivers don't go through, but these smaller slivers do. And if I'm not able to poke it out with a tweezer, then that what happens to that sliver? It just kind of festers inside that lining of the skin and it goes through an infection response and a, an immune response. So it builds up, artery disease builds up inside a lining of the skin. So it builds up like a pimple would on my face. You can get a clean bill of health. Now, let's say, I, I and I know this, you could have gone to the cardiologist the same day and they would have been, you know what, Jeff, everything's okay. Because they're looking for a plumbing problem. They're looking for an archaic way to see what's happening in terms of risk. It doesn't happen that way. And and unfortunately, I well, unfortunately, and I've seen a, a good progression of, of the different types of testing that we can do in our healthcare system. It's just gotten the technology has just gotten better. So instead of having a wired ECG, you have a wireless ECG. Instead of having a, I don't know, like I was in the, I started this, uh, my career where we had these big box ECGs, uh, you know, like big television screens. Now we got these nice flat screen TVs. And now I remember we had to go in and take the calipers and, and measure all these different things and what happens. Now the computer does that for us. So we just got better doing an archaic way of looking at heart disease. And that's, that's, not unfortunately that's what our healthcare system bills for so these cardiologists or internal medicine or radiologists are doing stress tests nuclear stress tests and they're they're designed to look for a plumbing problem so let's give you another analogy imagine the arteries are like a five lane highway system all five lanes are open no problem right it's it's imagine if you just have construction on the side of the road, the flow of traffic's not gonna flow like it's supposed to, but all five lanes are open. We start to close one lane, so four lanes are still open, no big deal. We start to close two lanes, no big deal. Still open, there's three lanes open, three lanes, until there are four lanes out of five lanes closed on that highway system, that's when a cardiologist will start to pick that up. Mm. Here's the sad part. 90% of heart attacks will occur with a blockage that is less than that. So three lanes, two lanes, one lane. Imagine driving down the highway system, only one lane is open, uh, sorry, one lane is closed, four lanes are still open. So we're, we're getting good traffic going through that, that, that system. But now all of a sudden you have that one lane closure and all of a sudden you end up with an accident. Four lanes, all four lanes, that's a heart attack. Right? You're going to get a clean bill of health all the way until four lanes out of five. That's not. That's a very archaic way of looking at it because we know that 90% of heart attacks will occur with a blockage that's less than that. Wow. Let's take this. Let's take this analogy again because yep. well, I cardiologists are good. They picked up. You know, I have people have tell me that. Well, they picked up a blockage. That's great. Now the trials show. Leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. What do you mean leave it alone? I want to open that thing up and uh, open it up like you could do more damage than good. This is the ischemia trial that showed it, which is actually a couple decades of work that shows doing a stent or bypass surgery is just as good as leaving it alone because this artery is all skin. 
And if I go poking around and do more damage to it, I can do more damage than good. Yeah, and that's where the heart fit clinic comes into play to to do treatments where we can grow new arteries, improve artery function, and reverse the disease process. Yeah, we're really good at that. Yeah, no question there. I am still amazed that we typically just don't get this kind of an explanation of what heart disease is and how a heart attack actually happens. It's incredible. I'm glad we're able to share this. People need to know this stuff. So Diamond, despite all I've learned, I'm still looking for answers. Yes, I understand that I may never get a definitive answer as to why and how I got into the situation where I had a heart attack, but I just can't shake the idea that my back pain and the long-term exposure to extreme chronic pain had something to do with it. Do you think it's possible that chronic pain or any pain for that matter can contribute to the risk of having heart issues? So the artery is all skin inside the lining of the artery wall. You know, I got a, I got an anatomy of an artery here. So if you look at the artery, it's, it's all skin inside of there, right? It's not, it's not a, it's not a, a pipe. People think that, like we said, cholesterol accumulates this pipe and you have a last piece of pizza and you end up with a heart attack. It doesn't right. have, It's all skin. So when you talk about chronic disease or sorry, um, chronic pain, what happens is, is that everything's fine until it's not right. And when we talk about what can damage that lining of skin, right? Think about what can hurt that. There are hundreds of markers, hundreds of things that can damage it. Medications for chronic pain can damage the artery well. Hundreds of things that can do that. But when we talk about what happened with you, there are hundreds of things that can hurt that lining of the skin. And once it gets damaged, that's where cholesterol particles get used up in a negative way. We've got small particles and large particles. So we got small uh, golf balls and we've got large tennis balls. The artery is protected by a tennis net-like structure. The smaller balls go through the lining of the artery wall. And then I told you, it's like a sliver. That's You can't get it out with a tweezers. So it festers inside there. Then it is an affection response. There. And that's the building process of what heart disease happens. You're going to get a clean bill of health all the way until four out of five lanes close. The majority of heart attacks could just be even one lane close on that four lane highway system. Here's a, here's another statistic and I'll, and I'll put this in inside the artery wall, right? We look at it like a pipe, a 50% blockage or less 40, 30, 20, 10, that's where the majority heart attacks occur. In fact, 70% of heart attacks occur there. It's a pimple popping inside the lining of the artery wall that causes that heart attack that you were feeling. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I wonder if we polled our audience, how many people actually know how this kind of heart attack happens? I don't think it would be very many. I mean, just the people I've been talking to, my family, friends, colleagues, everyone is surprised when I explain the actual process to them. I think from the time we were in school, we were taught that this greasy plaque builds up on the inside of our arteries and accumulates until it closes off the entire artery or until it's blocked off enough that our heart can't get the blood it needs. But that's not how it goes down. This pimple popping analogy is a much better description of how this type of heart attack happens. Arteriosclerosis is caused by the buildup of plaque on the inner lining of the artery. It actually gets into the skin of the lining and this buildup can be stable or unstable. And those unstable ones rupture and all hell breaks loose. That's how it goes down. What a great description, Diamond. Thanks for all of this. And thanks for all the work you and your team are doing there at the HeartFit Clinic. These explanations, 
help us all get a better understanding of heart disease. For more information on Diamond and the HeartFit Clinic, check out heartfit.ca. So I think it's quite obvious that we have a long way to go when it comes to clearly understanding, identifying and treating heart disease. I feel it's going to take some very special people to get our healthcare systems on course when it comes to heart disease, and I mean globally. Well, we're joined now by one of those special people, Dr. James Stone, clinical professor at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Dr. Stone is a groundbreaking pioneer in the area of heart health and heart disease prevention and one of the premier educators in this area of medicine. Dr. Stone, welcome to Crush Performance in episode two of Return from a Broken Heart. Jeff, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Stone, I know that heart disease is one of the top killers among men and women. So knowing this, what I can't get over is that we don't have a better system for detecting heart disease in advance. Is it that complicated or is this monster just that far ahead of us? But traditionally, what we have done is we have looked at, are you at risk for having an event? And that risk has been done by saying, you know, how old are you, male versus female? Because males start to have events at about the age of 55. Women start to have events about the age of 65. So we say age, uh, sex, do you smoke? Do you have an obviously elevated cholesterol? Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? Are you physically inactive? All of those things are exposure to the drivers of vascular disease. And if you have a lot of those things, we would traditionally say, well, you're at risk for events. But then that's going back 60 years ago. We knew that two generations ago. Mm, right. Well, what we've known for almost a generation uh, is that we can actually start looking now for so-called not only exposure to risk factors, but susceptibility. In other words, Uh, Do your arteries care about all of those things? Because some people are blessed and their arteries don't actually care. And, you know, every once in a while you come across the the person who does all the wrong thing and their arteries are pristine. So the missing part of the puzzle and the part that we certainly don't address in any organized fashion, unless you walk into my office, is the susceptibility, which is about looking at your arteries with some type of imaging technique and saying, do you have evidence of cholesterol buildup in your arteries? Dr. Stone, I had a full physical just over two weeks before my heart attack. Everything looked great. Heart rate, great. Blood pressure, great. Cholesterol, great. Blood sugar, great. All of my numbers were great. Are we even looking in the right places? Uh, my, My response always, Jeff, is that well, actually, those numbers aren't normal. Um, they are usual in a population where virtually everyone by the age of 50, male or female, exposure to risk factors or not. If we go looking for it, we will find cholesterol buildup in your arteries. If we go looking for it carefully, we will find evidence of disease with all of your blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugars, 
you name it, in the so-called normal range. Problem is that the normal range in Western society is not normal. It's shifted to a higher plane. True normal is lower. It's not, it's not an order of magnitude lower, but it's probably 20 to 30 to 40% lower, That's... which is enough. Yeah, which is enough that your arteries stay quite happy. And the struggle is that, you know, vascular disease is on a continuum from absolutely nothing to, wow, that looks really bad. Um, and along that continuum, you have people who have so-called normal uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, blood sugars. Uh, but again, their arteries are very susceptible. And so we don't look at that susceptibility side very well. So what you're saying is my normal numbers aren't really normal. That's concerning. Yeah, normal, normal is not normal. That's problem number one. And problem number two, again, is we don't look for evidence of disease. And a part of that is that the disease takes decades to develop. Um, you know, it's not unlike a pothole on your street. Canadians understand potholes, right? Yeah. When you say to your, our American colleagues, it's like a pothole and they go, is that like a sinkhole? No, right. yeah. <laughs> not quite that big. Yeah. Not quite that big. <laughs> you know, they don't understand, at least the ones from the Southern states don't understand the whole freeze thaw thing, yada, yada. But you know, you know, I mean, a pothole takes years to develop, but suddenly you wake up one morning, there's a pothole on your street. And you go, well, did that happen? And vascular disease takes decades to develop. And then you suddenly have an event. And three out of four people who have a heart attack have no symptoms beforehand. And the suddenness of the event to, to people makes it appear as though the disease just started when I started to have my event. But, but again, really the biggest issue here is, is the, the long disconnect between the fact that the, the disease, if we're honest, the disease starts while you're still in your mother's tummy. Right. That's the, that's, that's the brutal reality. If we go looking for it, we can find it there. Okay. Um, and so, and then it's four to five to six decades or longer before you have symptoms. And and we have been bound by the symptom paradigm and we have not been bound by the let's find the disease before people have symptoms. And it is all wound up in that disconnection between, uh, doc, I have no symptoms. I'm not going to be treated. Oh, then I don't need to go looking for the disease. So it's kind of like the old adage, out of sight, out of mind. Why would we go fix something that's not bothering us? Heck, why would we even look? That's one of the big issues, I guess. You know, for our athletes, we're very preventative. We do regular checkups, whether there are any issues or not. Kind of like a tune-up on your car. It's preventative work, preventative maintenance. I wish we were much more preventative when it comes to heart disease. And education is critical here. 
And on that note, Dr. Stone, I have a beautiful wife and three incredible daughters. And since my event, I have learned a lot about heart disease in women. They may have different signs and symptoms than men, and they also have fewer heart attacks, but their survival rates are much worse than men, mainly because they might not even realize they're having a heart attack because their signs and symptoms aren't what we typically talk about. Absolutely. Uh, and, you've, and you've identified the most important statistic, which is that uh, once women have established disease, their mortality rates are higher. Their survival rates are lower. Um, part of that is wrapped up in the fact that uh, they tend to be identified later in life and age is simply a marker for, marker for risk. But, if, but even when you statistically adjust for that, as we say, uh, the disease in women seems to be more aggressive. And uh, that may have something to do with the uh, hormone mix. We know that uh, uh, we define, you know, early uh, or an early family history of heart attack in males before the age of 55 and in women before the age of 65. So we know that there is a 10 to 15 year lag for women from the time that they hit menopause on average about age 48 to 50, and they start having heart attack events age 65. Uh, estrogen is doing something uh, positive because it takes, or progesterone, because it takes a long time to wear out. So, but the, the biggest thing for women is it's not on their radar. When you survey women, they consistently Four times out of five, when you survey them and you ask them the biggest killer of women, what do they tell you? Probably cancer, I'd guess. Cancer, 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 cancer. And four times out of five, are they wrong? Yes. Hmm. Heart disease, heart disease, heart disease, stroke. Wow. Uh, So, so it's, it's number one is a misappreciation for what the problem is. Number two, because of that misappreciation, okay, or underappreciation, they don't recognize the symptoms because they're not thinking that, right? Men start thinking, there's an elephant sitting in my chest and I can't breathe. Hmm. I remember hearing something about that could be a symptom of a heart attack, right? Women start thinking about their stomach, they start thinking about back issues because sometimes they have back pain. So there's a whole there's a whole series of things that go on that cause women to not report uh, their symptoms. And so those are two big problems. Then the other problem that we certainly see consistently in cardiac rehab programs is that you know men come into cardiac rehab programs, they're looked after, their spouses often show up with them, right? Women come into cardiac rehab programs, they're by themselves. Spouses are off at work. Kids are doing their own thing. They're on their own. And they very often drop out because they got to go home and do everything. Uh, so there, there is this disconnect between the way that women access uh, services and the way that men access services. And we need education, education, education. Absolutely. There's no question. We need to make sure that all of the ladies out there know this stuff. It will save lives. And speaking of saving lives, Dr. Stone, aspirin. 
So when my dad had his heart attack, he was just able to pull two chewable baby aspirin that he carried with him everywhere. He said that he was just able to get them out of his jeans pocket as he was laying on the floor of our farmhouse. He was all alone at the time. And he said it brought him back enough so he could get to his phone to dial 911. The doctors later said that chewing that aspirin may have saved his life. When I had my heart attack, the first thing those three gentlemen in the parking lot said, does anybody have aspirin? So we know aspirin thins the blood. Should we all carry aspirin everywhere we go? So it's something everybody should know about. The controversy around aspirin always gets around, uh, should I take aspirin if I'm otherwise apparently healthy to prevent a heart attack? And the answer to that is no. Uh, the research for that in the so-called primary prevention environment is, no, it won't be helpful. Uh, and that's primary prevention. Once you already have established disease, right, uh, either you've had a heart attack or we've done some type of imaging and established that you have disease in your arteries, you should be taking aspirin. Those are the two primary, those are the two, sorry, common circumstances. The circumstance you're talking about is should I have a couple of uh, chewable aspirins in my wallet? And if you're asking me, hey, I would say yes, absolutely. Right. Okay, great idea. Uh, you know, when you when you take a couple of aspirins and you chew them, the active ingredients in aspirin go right through your cheeks into your system. What they do is they help to prevent blood clots from forming, and in an acute heart attack, the major problem is a blood clot in one of the arteries of your heart. And if you can get aspirin into your system quickly, you may reduce the amount of clot, right? Um, not only that, but because it's in your system, your body's already trying to break down that clot. So there's a, there's a tug of war between forming clot and breaking down clot. With aspirin in your system, it may make it more likely for your body to break down some of the clot and reduce the size of the heart attack, potentially. So yes, I think, you know, if you're a male over the age of 50 or if you're a woman over the age of 60, carrying a couple of chewable aspirins in your wallet or your uh, uh, purse or whatever you're carrying, not a bad idea. Okay. Don't take them every day if you don't have established disease because Two to three percent of people on aspirin every year have a life-threatening bleed. So aspirin is not innocuous. Okay, but the idea of just carrying it around—in fact, you know, a decade ago, one of the pharma companies uh, put out a little kit with a, uh, a couple of nitroglycerin tablets and a couple of aspirin tablets, and uh, they were giving them away for about a year as a marketing thing. Um, so I think carrying them around. Not a bad idea. And you were very fortunate that the two people you were with went out looking for aspirin. Well, I wish I'd gotten their names, the three runners who helped me that morning. I probably wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for them. Unfortunately, I was a little preoccupied with some serious pain and trying to stay alive to take down their contact info. But boy, am I grateful for those three guys for sure. So I've told you about my frustration levels here and you've really helped me put things into perspective, but I still can't get away from the idea that my extended exposure to serious and brutal chronic pain might've contributed to my heart attack. Am I way off base here or is there a connection to chronic pain and heart disease? Is that something you would look at as a cardiologist? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we know 
So uh, pain is stress, right? Um, and, you know, stress causes the release of two major hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. Uh, both of those are drivers of inflammation, vascular disease. And when we're talking about heart disease in this conversation, just to emphasize for people, we're talking about vascular disease. We're talking about coronary artery disease. We're talking about lumpy, bumpy cholesterol buildup type disease in your arteries. We're not talking about a pump problem with your heart. We're not talking about a valve problem in this conversation. We're just talking about vascular disease. In that situation, stress elevates adrenaline, elevates cortisol. That elevates a huge array of inflammatory drivers in your in your bloodstream and those inflammatory drivers will drive the progression of cholesterol buildup in your arteries but they will also work to destabilize the plaques that are already present in your arteries mm. and so so not at all unusual again uh you know in the in the secondary prevention environment that I work in in cardiac rehab programs, um, it's 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 not very common to see somebody who says, "I don't understand this." You know, my life was great, um, everything was wonderful. Uh, when you survey people, uh, a third of people who've had a heart attack are, as we say, dysthymic, which means, you know, their mental health is not super. Um, uh, 15% of people uh, are clinically depressed or have major anxiety issues. Mm. So, so, so mental health, and I'll just throw in stress as a an adverse impactor of mental health, regardless of what the stress is, whether it's pain, whether it's work, whether it's relationships, whether it's you name it, um, stress falls in there. And so, yeah, that that part doesn't surprise me at all. And the literature supports that. We see that over and over again. And um, it's a it's it's one of those useful useless things that I say to people in cardiac rehab, Jeff, and I say it's useless because it's, you know, it's the old don't worry, be happy. Yeah, thanks, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're connecting dots here. There's no question about it. I wonder if this is where the old saying, a broken heart came from. You know, my my girlfriend broke up with me or, you know, my mom passed away. And I told my wife, my mom passed away here recently. And I told my wife, I feel like my heart is broken again. Isn't that something when you talk about the effects of emotions and stress on, on the heart and the vascular system? And we've always had that saying, oh, I've got a, you know, he's got a broken heart right now. My heart is broken. My heart is broken. Um, and, uh, that is uh, euphemistically, and it's also literally. Um, you know, I mean, the, the good news about the uh, the literal "my heart is broken" in contemporary uh, uh, Western society with contemporary science and uh, treatment, um, you know, we can go. We can do a lot of things. I mean, when I started in medical school, you know the average individual who had a heart attack lived for 13 years uh, after their heart attack. And, uh, you know, in our cardiac rehab program, we're now, we, we see people routinely living out 25 and 30 years. Um, and so that's a huge advance. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a tribute 
to uh, to all the science. So um, we do a better job with the uh, the literal broken heart. I'm not sure we're doing a much better job with the figurative broken heart. Uh, although that's also something that's changed dramatically, Jeff. Certainly in the 21st century, is yep. is the focus on mental health uh, for our patients who have really any form of chronic disease. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's vascular disease, whether it's arthritic disease, whether it's some other type of chronic disease. The mental health aspects are extremely important. Um, and, you know, anybody, uh, either as a patient or a healthcare professional, needs to embrace that uh, and not treat it as some sort of, uh, oh, you're a pariah because you're having mental health issues, you're depressed, you're anxious, whatever. Uh, no, that that's part of the disease, and that's as healthcare professionals and as patients. Those are conversations that we need to have. I mean, I try to say to all of my patients, uh, every time I see them or talk to them, I try to make sure I have the, how are you doing? Not the, you know, how's it going? I, I always try to give them the opportunity to tell me they're either doing well or they're not doing well. And... If they're not doing well from a mental health perspective, then we need to take the steps to get them back on the right track. Well, I can vouch for the mental side of things here, Dr. Stone. Chronic pain can change who you are. It did for me. I fell to such dark places. I didn't even know a person could fall that far. Between the physical pain, the depression, and hopelessness, man, I was a ticking time bomb. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for all of this. I can tell you for certain that if I'd heard this conversation prior to all my troubles, I would have a very different perspective on things. And I hope that we'll be able to help a lot of people out there. So thank you so much for all you do. And for our listeners, if you have any questions you'd like to get to Dr. Stone, please send them to info at jeffkershell.com and we'll forward them on. Okay, there you go, everyone. I am back from a broken heart, and I think I can comfortably say I'm back better than ever. Still a few pounds to lose, but that's not a problem at all. I now have such a great new knowledge of back pain, chronic pain, heart disease, depression, and the darkness and feelings of hopelessness, and the thoughts of ending it all. I can tell you, if you are suffering from any of these, there is hope. There are answers, and if you just can't seem to find them, write to me, and I will help as much as I possibly can. I can tell you this, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the help of other people. So understand you're not alone out there. You just have to ask. You have to look to other people for help. and You'll be surprised what happens. I have to thank Dr. Stephen Ray, Diamond Fernandez, and Dr. James Stone for all of their incredible information. Again, we'll be posting the full-length interviews each of these incredible guests and there is so much bonus information in each conversation please take the time to listen in and i want to thank you guys for listening in i hope these return episodes help you as much as they've helped me and now it's onwards next week we are back to all of the crush stuff we love helping you improve your performance while at the very same time working to raise your ceiling of potential to new heights next week athletes are you coachable Coaches, are your players coachable? And parents, are your athletes and players coachable? 
Next week, I'll explain exactly what coachable means and how you can help yourself, your players, or your athletes become more coachable. It's easier than you might think. That's next week right here on Crush Performance. Have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you then.